This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature. Listener discretion is advised. In March 1999, the brutal triple murders of a woman and two teenage girls rocked the small towns dotted throughout the Sierra Nevada foothills in California. The previous month, the Yosemite Valley had become the scene of a massive search and rescue operation, where hundreds of volunteers, police, friends and family searched for any sign of Carol and Julie Sund and their companion, Sylvina Peloso. Within two weeks, their case was upgraded from missing to presumed murdered. By the end of March, authorities had recovered all three bodies and an FBI-led task force was assembled to catch those responsible. Authorities had several strong suspects in custody and were moving forward with charges, confident that they had the guilty parties behind bars. It would take another gruesome death for them to refocus their attention on the actual perpetrator. That man was Carrie Stainer. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. Kerry Stainer was the older brother of Stephen Stainer, a seven-year-old boy who had been abducted and held captive for more than seven years by convicted child sex offender Kenneth Parnell. If you haven't already listened to In the Shadow of Yosemite, Part 1, go back and do that now. As I said previously, the theme of this season is captivity. While this case on its own falls slightly outside the remit of this theme, it's relevant in the fact that it bears a direct correlation to Carrie's brother Stephen's experience in long-term captivity and the implications that experience had on his family waiting at home for his return. Is there a correlation between what happened to Stephen Stainer and the chasm it left in his family that even his eventual return couldn't mend? Was Carrie Stainer destined to become a serial killer? regardless of whether Stephen had been taken or not. While we may not ever have definitive answers to these questions, this episode will tell the stories of the women and children whose lives were so cruelly cut short by Carrie Stainer and explore the elements that contributed to the development of a killer. We can't tell Carrie's story without telling those of his victims. Carol Sund was a 42-year-old mother of four children, her eldest daughter, Julie, was 15 years old. Sund, along with her husband, Jens, had adopted three younger children, Jonah, Gina, and Jimmy. The family shared a bungalow in Eureka, California, with their children and two dogs, Gigi, a poodle, and Reggie, a Bichon Frise. 
Together, Carol and Jens ran a realtor business with Carol managing several properties, including shopping centers. It was very much a family business. Silvina Peloso, a 16-year-old Argentinian foreign exchange student and family friend, was staying with the sons for a three-month period. Carol had planned a short trip for the older girls and the trio left their home on Friday the 12th of February 1999. Eureka is a city in Northern California, approximately halfway between San Francisco and Portland, Oregon. From there, the group took a flight to San Francisco and rented a red Pontiac Grand Prix car. The next day, Carol drove the group to Stockton so that Julie could perform in a cheerleading competition at the University of the Pacific. On Sunday the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, they continued east to Yosemite National Park before checking into the Cedar Lodge on the western slope of the park. On Monday, Carol, Julie and Sylvina followed an established hiking trail. Carol was a regular visitor to Yosemite and had hiked there many times before. That afternoon, the party ate at the restaurant attached to the Cedar Lodge. The girls ordered cheeseburgers. They rented the film Jerry Maguire from the service desk in the motel to watch in their room. This was the last verified sighting of the group. Later that evening, Carol spoke to her husband Jens on the phone, confirming that they would meet him at San Francisco airport to catch their next flight. Jens was preparing for an upcoming business trip to Arizona. He had made plans to meet Carol and the girls at San Francisco airport on Monday evening. Once reunited, the group would travel together to Arizona with Jens attending his meeting and the girls touring the Grand Canyon. Jens waited, but none of the group turned up. On Tuesday the 16th of February, Jens contacted the police, who soon discovered that the rental car had not been returned. The rental company confirmed that no one had contacted them to extend the rental agreement. Local police theorised that Carol, Julie and Sylvina didn't leave the park and that they had somehow gotten lost on one of the many hiking paths. Staff at Cedar Lodge claimed that nothing was out of place in the room and that there was no sign of suspicious activity. Advance checkout had been done and the room keys were left on the desk in the room, rather than at the front desk as was standard practice for guests. Remember when I said that Carol and Yen's business was very much a family one? Carol's parents, Frances and Carol Carrington, were also involved in the real estate business and owned several shopping centres. They had accumulated significant wealth in their decades in business. At first, there was speculation that the disappearance was related to the family's substantial wealth and that a ransom would be demanded by the captors. Police soon discarded this line of inquiry and proceeded with the theory that Carol and the girls were simply victims of random foul play. After Carol, Julie and Sylvina were reported missing, police questioned motel employees, including handyman Kerry Stainer. At the time, there was nothing suspicious in his behaviour or statements that drew the suspicion of authorities. 
Stainer also had no history of violence or similar charges that would have made him a suspect. Instead, police focused their attention on more obvious suspects. Four days after the women disappeared, Carol's wallet was found intact, dumped off a highway in Modesto, three hours away from where the bodies would eventually be found. Carol's wallet still contained her credit cards as well as cash. So who was Carrie Stainer? Carrie Anthony Stainer was born on the 13th of August 1961 in Merced, California. He was the oldest son of the Stainer family. Carrie was 11 years old when his younger brother Stephen was abducted by convicted sex offender Kenneth Parnell. In 1980, when Stephen returned to his family, Carrie was 17. He graduated from Merced High School in 1979 and later worked as a window installer at a glass company. His classmates voted him most creative and it was assumed that he would go on to have a career as a graphic artist or cartoonist. Speaking to Mike Eccles, who wrote the book, I Know My First Name Is Stephen, Carey said, quote, I remember going out one night after Steve disappeared and wishing on a star that my brother would come back home. He said that he repeated this ritual almost every clear night or whenever he could get a good look at the sky. He did this from the time his brother went missing until he returned. Carey participated in a series of audio interviews with screenwriter J.P. Miller, along with Stephen and other family members as research for the TV miniseries based on Stephen's life. In one such interview, Carey admitted that when Stephen returned after his abduction, the two brothers didn't really get along. He said that suddenly, quote, Steve was getting all these gifts, getting all this clothing, getting all this attention. He said that he was jealous. He went on to say, I was the oldest. Then all of a sudden, it's gone. I got put on the back burner. This brings us back to the press conference outside the Stainer home that I mentioned in the last episode. In the days after Stephen's return, while Stephen and his father Dell spoke to the assembled media, Carrie, wearing a baseball cap, stared at his brother before turning his head away from the spectacle and exiting the frame. Journalist Stephen Flynn tells us that, quote, everyone was smiling, there was a lot of jubilation, but if you look in the background, there's something worth noting. And it's Carrie in his baseball cap, and he's not smiling at all, end quote. Journalist Ted Rollins tells us that Carrie had a strange relationship with his younger brother. He said that Stephen was getting all of this attention and was now a very different person. In the last episode, we heard Carrie describing his father's reaction to Stephen's disappearance and how he had never seen his father cry or express emotion in that way. He said that suddenly life changed. When pressed by Miller about how he felt about Stephen's act of bravery, Carrie had the following to say. 
If we remember from the last episode, Stephen Stainer rescued Timmy White, the five-year-old boy Kenneth Purnell had also abducted in February 1980. Carey said, Just about anybody would have done the same thing in his shoes. He acknowledged that the situation that Stephen and Timmy were in was wrong, and that Stephen turned it right. Referring to Stephen and Timmy's escape, he said that anyone would, quote, do it if they had any moral fibre to them, end quote. Carey stated that Stephen was just a normal everyday kid and implied that the media blew it out of proportion with calling him a hero. We could interpret this statement in two ways. Firstly, that anyone in the position that Stephen found himself in alone with Timmy in an isolated cabin, would have tried to escape and return the missing child. Or we could look at a possible darker interpretation, in that Stephen's actions were no big deal and nothing special, and therefore he should not be celebrated as a hero, least of all by the media. Rowlands tells us that there is nothing to suggest that Carey was all that thrilled to see his brother. He adds that while the two boys shared a room, they didn't get along. In an audio interview as preparation for the miniseries I Know My First Name is Stephen, Carey told J.P. Miller that he thought that his life ought to be a movie. In retrospect, we can speculate that Carey felt that he should be the main character in the Stainer family, and Stephen, his siblings, and their parents merely side characters. This is common in people with narcissistic tendencies. There may be an element of egotism and narcissism emanating from Carey's statement. Wisdom and self-reflection often come with age so we can't presume that this is evidence of something darker and not just an offhand comment by someone young and possibly immature. Todd Eric Andrews, the actor who portrayed teenaged Carrie Stainer in I Know My First Name is Stephen, acknowledged that in telling Stephen's story, we also see glimpses of Carrie feeling neglected, of Carrie feeling not important. Carey reportedly had difficulty dealing with Stephen's death in 1989, as would be expected when a sibling dies suddenly. In the aftermath, he turned to drugs to help him cope. In 1990, Carey was living with his uncle Jesse Stainer, known to family as Jerry. Jerry was a dispatcher at a trucking company. One day in 1990, Jerry reportedly came home for lunch and disturbed a burglary in progress at his home. The killer shot Jerry three times using his own shotgun and left him for dead. Carey later found his body and reported the crime. Speculation in the years since have suggested that there was no burglary and that it was, in fact, Carey who shot and killed his uncle. Police were criticised for taking the burglary gun wrong aspect as fact and not investigating every 
possible angle to solve the crime. After Kerry's arrest in 1999, police reopened the investigation into Jerry's murder to see if Kerry may have been involved in this crime. No charges were ever levied against him for the death of Jerry Stainer. However, rumours have persisted over the years that Jerry was Carrie's first victim. We of course know that just because charges were not brought against him does not mean that he was not responsible. We see this all the time, where police and family members are convinced of a suspect's guilt in a crime, but they have no tangible evidence to successfully prosecute the crime. Jerry's murder could also be a straightforward burglary gone wrong, as Kerry maintained. So much time has passed and evidence was not collected from the crime scene at the time of the murder. We just don't know either way. There have been allegations that an uncle began sexually abusing Kerry soon after Stephen's abduction. This would have been circa 1972-73. There is no evidence to suggest that Jerry Stainer was the uncle in question, but this has not prevented speculation, particularly online. Murderpedia goes far as to state this as fact, as do many commentators online. A history of child sexual abuse within the Stainer family emerged during Kerry's trial. His mother Kay admitted to having been sexually abused as a child. It's unknown how this abuse, coupled with the trauma of Stephen's abduction, shaped the course of this family's lives. Police Chief Tony Dossetti, one of the officers involved in Stephen Stainer's case, later said that it had crossed his mind that, quote, maybe this was Carey's way of competing with his brother's notoriety. End quote. During his trial, Kerry admitted to exposing himself to his sister's friends. On one occasion, during a sleepover, he groped one of his sister's friends and later exposed himself to her in the doorway of a bedroom. He said that he had harbored dark thoughts about harming women since he was seven years old. While he seemed popular at school, he had difficulties forming relationships with women. Rollins believes that Kerry had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them. Yet it seems that he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationships with any women. Stainer's cousin, Kathy Amy, was interviewed for the television program Mugshot in 2004. She recalls Kerry encouraging her and his siblings to role-play inappropriate scenarios. According to Kathy, at times Kerry would choke his sisters and cousins or pretend to hypnotize them and then instruct them to remove their clothes. On one occasion, he even ripped the head off a bird. She recalls that he was a voyeur and constantly invaded their private spaces including trying to watch them undress and shower. After Jerry died, Kathy says that Kerry moved in with his younger sister, Corey. She said that Corey was livid when she found that Kerry had placed a video recorder in her bathroom. 
presumably to see his sister naked. Kerry was diagnosed with OCD or obsessive-compulsive disorder. He frequently wore a hat to disguise his trichotillomania, a compulsive hair-pulling condition that he had suffered from since he was a child. Many people with this condition also have a diagnosis of OCD. In 1991, Carey unsuccessfully attempted to take his own life through carbon monoxide poisoning. At some point in the mid-90s, Carey was demonstrating symptoms of mental illness and had what he described as a nervous breakdown. While working at an autoglass company, a co-worker found Stainer pounding his fists against a sheet of plywood until they were bloody. Mark Marchese, a childhood friend of Carey's, describes how Carey told him that he, quote, felt like jumping in a truck, driving it through the shop and killing the boss and killing everybody in the office, end quote. Marchese told him that he needed to go to a doctor. But according to Marchese, instead of seeking mental health treatment, he moved to Yosemite. Despite the claim that Carey didn't seek help and fled directly to Yosemite, he did reportedly check himself into a mental health clinic to receive treatment. There, he attended group therapy and was prescribed antipsychotic medication. Although it's not known if he was diagnosed with a mental health condition that warranted antipsychotics. One day, he simply checked himself out and was never seen again by those who had been treating him. In March 1997, Carey was arrested and booked into Merced County Jail on drug offences. Charges were never filed and he was released a few days later. Sometime after this, Carey began working at the Cedar Lodge, a motel in El Portal, California. Cedar Lodge stands at the entrance of Yosemite National Park. While working at the Cedar Lodge, Carey lived in a small apartment above the restaurant. As part of his role as a handyman, Carey performed both technical and housekeeping duties. In February 1999, when the three women went missing from the motel, Carey had temporarily been laid off but was still living in the apartment on the top floor of the restaurant. As the months passed and police and the FBI searched for the missing women, Carey seemed to once again be working for the lodge. Gerald Fisher, manager of the Cedar Lodge while Stainer worked there, recalls him as being a reliable employee. He said that Stainer was always quick to step up to the task at hand, and if you had a problem, he'd be right there. It's March 1999. Police, family members and volunteers conducted coordinated searches of the area in and around the lodge, and further into Yosemite National Park. The search parties implemented ground searches as well as utilising searches on skis and by helicopter. By late February, authorities were no closer to solving the disappearance. FBI agent Nick Rossi said at the time that, quote, We have not yet uncovered evidence to allow us to determine conclusively whether this was a tragic accident or 
a criminal act. End quote. On the 28th of February, after the discovery of Carol's wallet, the FBI relocated its investigation headquarters from Yosemite to Modesto. It was then that authorities upgraded the investigation from that of a missing persons case to one of murder. Carol's parents and her husband Jens temporarily moved into a hotel room in Modesto. This was so that they could be close to the FBI task force in case of new developments. During a press conference, the family offered a $250,000 reward for the safe return of Carol, Julie and Sylvina. This figure was later increased to $300,000 but was never claimed. By mid-March, an FBI task force was assembled, comprising of 60 FBI agents and law enforcers from four surrounding counties. On the 18th of March, Sun's burnt-out car was spotted by a member of the public and reported to authorities. The next day, police discovered the car and removed it for forensic examination. It would be several days before dental records confirmed that the badly burnt bodies found in the truck were those of Carl Sund and Sylvina Peloso. FBI agent James Maddock was placed in charge of the investigation. He told the press with some certainty that he believed that the women were victims of a violent crime. In a press conference on the 27th of March, Maddox said that the case had been given the designation of a major case. This meant that authorities could utilize as many resources as deemed necessary to solve the crime. Authorities believed that whoever committed this crime was familiar with the terrain and was local to the area. The burnt-out rental car had been hidden off a spur road used by locals to dump old washing machines, cars and other large appliances. Adding further to the speculation of multiple perpetrators, Jens son stated that he believed that there were likely several people involved and that they were possibly involved in the methamphetamine trade in Tulum County. This was a line of inquiry that the police and FBI also followed. After the charred remains of the rental car were discovered, Jens speculated that this crime was committed by someone with the foresight to cover their tracks. He said that because of the way the car was dropped off, someone would have to be there to drive another car. He added that it seemed like it was planned out. The way the car was hidden and burned, Somebody who was just psychotic wouldn't bother about hiding the car and hiding the evidence. The task force specifically looked at convicted sex offenders and those with a history of violence in the area. They focused on a group of meth dealers in Modesto, all of whom had prior criminal records. After initial inquiries, four suspects emerged. These men were ordered to testify before a grand jury in Fresno, California in April 1999, although no charges were levied against them. On the 25th of March, authorities received an anonymous handwritten letter on a sheet of notebook paper. The letter contained a map directing police to Julie's body. 
along with the phrase, we had fun with this one written on it. The letter had been posted earlier in the month before the vehicle or bodies had even been found. For some reason, it had not been logged correctly. The map led authorities to Julie's badly decomposed body. By late June, the FBI had reviewed the suspect testimonies and were confident that they had those responsible for the murders in custody. I have redacted the names of the suspects as they were never charged with these crimes. The suspects were 1. M, a 42-year-old drug user with a long criminal history who was in custody for allegedly shooting a police officer in March 1999. R, the 32-year-old half-brother of M and also a member of a vagabond group of methamphetamine drug users who frequented the area near where Carl and Sylvina's bodies were found. The third suspect was B, a 39-year-old parolee who worked at the Cedar Lodge Lounge and Restaurant. The trio had shared a meal here before retiring to their room. This was the last public sighting of Carol, Julie and Sylvina. The final suspect was D, the 55-year-old roommate of B. He had a previous 1978 conviction for rape and robbery. He was jailed in March 1999 for failing to register as a sex offender. While authorities were confident that they had solved the crime and had those responsible in custody, another grisly murder would soon have them questioning everything they thought they knew about the investigation. Joey Ruth Armstrong was born on the 20th of December, 1972. This was just 16 days after Stephen Stainer was abducted by Kenneth Parnell. While they did not know each other, the Armstrong family likely watched the news of Stephen's abduction and the subsequent media appeals from police and the Stainer family with sympathy and held their newborn baby close, thankful that she was, at least in this moment, safe. They could never have predicted that a thread from that news story could impact their family in the devastating way that it did just 26 years later. Joey lived in an isolated part of Yosemite National Park, in a cabin known as the Greenhouse in the Foresta community. In July 1999, she was 26 years old. She was a nature guide who worked for the Yosemite Institute, leading nature tours for children and adults. Joey disappeared on Wednesday the 21st of July 1999. The next day, a friend reported her missing. The last verified sighting of Joey had been on Wednesday evening at the Yosemite Institute offices. She had planned a trip to visit a friend near San Francisco and had packed her car for the trip. When she failed to turn up, the friend notified the police. When authorities arrived at Joey's cabin, they found signs of a major struggle inside. It was clear that foul play was involved with blood, hair and other forensic evidence visible at the crime scene. Tire tracks that did not belong to Joey's vehicle were found leading up to the cabin. 
A witness reported seeing a blue and white jeep leaving the vicinity the previous evening. A park ranger reported that he had picked up a hitchhiker the night before, in the area between Joey's cabin and the Cedar Lodge. The hitchhiker told the ranger that his jeep had broken down. Park rangers discovered Joey's body the morning after her disappearance in a clearing beyond a campground approximately 800 metres away from the cabin. She had been decapitated. Her head was found in the water several metres from her body. The water she was found in was a stream that she and her friends often used for fresh drinking water. Authorities wondered if this gruesome murder could be related to the triple murder that had shocked communities in Yosemite Valley just five months previously. The FBI task force believed that they had those responsible for the Sund Peloso killings in custody, but could not ignore the potential similarities to the crime that this new body posed, nor the proximity to the previous dump sites. Authorities began interviewing witnesses and canvassing the area around Joey's cabin. Inside the cabin, the FBI found possible bodily fluid stains on a bedsheet, bloodstained clothing, and latent fingerprints from the interior of Joey's vehicle. A park ranger and sheriff's deputy soon spotted a jeep matching the witness's description parked near a stream. The jeep's owner was sunbathing nearby on the rocks. They questioned the man but had no hard evidence to hold him. They seized his backpack, pending a warrant to search it, and took photographs of the tyres to compare to impressions taken from outside the victim's cabin. The man they questioned was Kerry Stainer. Kerry Stainer was now a viable suspect. The park ranger who had picked him up on Wednesday night identified him from a photograph. When a warrant was issued for the backpack, a camera was found along with a novel about a serial killer. Which in and of itself is not strange, but added to the belief that the police had the right suspect for this crime. After being questioned by police at the stream, Stainer returned to the Cedar Lodge, packed his belongings and fled to a nudist colony 260 kilometres away in Wilton, near Sacramento. Authorities issued an All Points Bulletin, or APB, on Kerry Stainer. A member of the public called the police to report a sighting of him at the nudist colony. Two days after the murder, police matched the tyre prints found outside Joey's cabin to Stainer's jeep. Stainer was located at the Laguna del Sol nudist colony in Wilton and taken into custody for further questioning. On the 24th of July, 1999, Special Agent James Maddock, who had led the Sund Peloso case, announced that they had a suspect in custody. He said, quote, During the last 24 hours, we have developed specific information linking Stainer also to the Sund Peloso murders. 
Authorities came under intense criticism from the media and the public for not pursuing Stainer in the stunned Peloso killings, despite him hiding in plain sight for the entirety of the investigation. Stainer confessed on three separate occasions. Firstly, to FBI agent John Bowles in the car on the way to be interrogated, then to FBI agent Jeff Rinnick in a tape confession, and finally to journalist Ted Rowlands who interviewed him from Fresno County Jail. During his confession to John Bowles, the agent said that Stainer described Joey's murder in an unemotional manner as if he were reading a soup label. Yen's son, Carol's husband, expressed his surprise when Stainer confessed to the killings. He said, quote, I was pretty surprised because we thought that the three or four people in custody were the people that had done it. End quote. Tim Bazaar, a public defender representing one of the four men arrested in Modesto for the Sun Pelosa murders, suggested an unconscious bias on the part of investigators on this case. He said that people who commit murders don't necessarily look like murderers. He added that he hoped that the FBI learned something from this case. Soon after Stainer was arrested, Rowlands approached him in jail, and to his surprise, Stainer agreed to be interviewed. Rowland says that Stainer immediately began asking about potential movie deals and other opportunities to capitalise on his story. He said, I want you to get hold of some producers in LA. I want a movie of the week made about my story. End quote. Rowlands tells us that Stainer wanted the same treatment from the media that his brother had received. He suggests that Stainer wanted the world to take note. Rollins made no promises, but Stainer was so eager to share his story that he confessed anyway, even without confirmation of a movie deal. This next section may be difficult to hear. Stainer admitted to struggling with violent sexual fantasies for at least 30 years. He said that he had planned to rape and kill his girlfriend and her 8- and 11-year-old daughters the previous year, but had changed his mind. On Valentine's Day 1999, Stainer stalked four girls staying at the Cedar Lodge with the intention of killing them, but once again didn't follow through as they were in the company of a man. The next night, he encountered Carol Sund and the teenagers. Stainer said that on the evening of the 15th of February, he saw a red car in the 500 building all by itself. Quote, The curtain was open and I can see inside that there was two young women and the mother and no man. End quote. Stainer knew that there were very few people in the building, so he would have the time and privacy to do what he had planned. He told Ted Rollins that when he decided it was time, he went to his room to retrieve his backpack or murder kit, as he called it. In the self-described kill kit, Stainer had a loaded gun, a large knife, 
duct tape, rope, and a camera. Stainer said that he gained access to the women's room by claiming to have to fix a water leak. Although some reports state that it was actually a faulty bathroom fan he claimed needed to be repaired. He claims that the girls were watching Jerry Maguire and Carol was reading a book. He emerged from the bathroom holding a gun. Dennis McDougall, author of The Yosemite Murders, describes how once Stainer got into the room, he brandished a weapon and forced Carol as the authority figure to encourage the two teenagers to cooperate. He made them believe that it was a robbery, and if they cooperated, they would not be harmed. He tied Carol up first, and duct-taped her mouth, then did the same to the girls before forcing them into the bathroom. For the next few minutes, I'm going to tell you about what happened to Carol, Julie and Sylvina, according to Kerry Stainer's detailed confession. It's a difficult listen. If you prefer not to hear it, please skip ahead four to five minutes. According to Stainer, he strangled Carol with a length of rope and placed her body in the boot of her rental car. He then turned his attention to the girls. He brought the girls back into the bedroom and either ripped or cut their clothes off. He tried, without success, to force the girls to perform sex acts on each other, but became so irritated by Sylvina's crying that he took her into the bathroom and strangled her as she knelt in the bathtub. He then raped Julie repeatedly taking her between the son's motel room and the room next door. Let's remember he had keys to every room. He left her tied up with a TV on in the room next door while he disposed of Sylvina's body and cleaned the room to remove trace evidence, making it appear as if the group had simply checked out. Stainer says that Julie told him that her name was Sarah. At 4am, Stainer wrapped Julie in a pink motel blanket, placed her in the passenger seat of the rental car and drove an hour north to Lake Don Pedro, a secluded area near Moccasin, California. Once at the lake, he carried her up a dirt path to a clearing overlooking the water. He sexually assaulted her again before cutting her throat as the sun rose. He then drove the red Pontiac as far into the forest as he could and dumped it. He took a taxi back to the Cedar Lodge using money he had stolen from Carol. Two days later, he drove his truck back to where he had earlier dumped the rental car. He retrieved Carol's wallet and etched the phrase, We have Sarah, into the paintwork with a pocket knife, before dousing the vehicle in gasoline and setting it on fire. When he was finished, he drove his own vehicle through Modesto and dumped Carol's wallet there in a deliberate act of misdirection. Stainer told Rollins that Julie was not abused or tortured in any way. It later emerged that she was in fact sexually abused extensively. This proves that Stainer is an unreliable narrator. He lied or omitted key facts depending on who he was telling the story to and how he wanted to control the narrative. 
Rollins asked Stainer what he was feeling once he had killed Carol, Julie and Sylvina. He said that he felt scared, although maybe that had more to do with the fear of being caught. Stainer admitted to writing the anonymous note directing authorities to Julie's body. He had allegedly gotten the idea after watching a documentary about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Stainer had someone else lick the stamp and seal the envelope to further confuse authorities. After the rental car and bodies had been found, members of the task force returned to the Cedar Lodge specifically to locate a pink blanket that Julie had been wrapped up in, as fibres had been found during forensic examination of her body. The Cedar Lodge cooperated by assigning a staff member to assist them in their search. That employee was Carrie Stainer. Many perpetrators of violent crime like to insert themselves into investigations, either as witnesses, concerned citizens, or to relive the crime. We have seen this again and again. The examples that immediately come to mind are those of Edmund Kemper and Ian Huntley. Some killers like to force proximity to the case by courting police and media. Kemper was labelled the co-ed killer by the press. He murdered 10 people, beginning with his grandparents when he was 15, and later escalated to murdering several female college students. He ended his killing spree by murdering his mother, Clarnell. When his mother's close friend came to check up on her the next day, he also killed her. Kemper frequented bars that police officers drank in. He was well known to local police, who, despite his prior conviction for the murder of his grandparents, viewed him as a harmless police groupie. He eventually sought out police to give a full confession, frustrated that they had not yet connected the clues and arrested him. Ian Huntley was an English school caretaker who abducted and murdered two 10-year-old girls in August 2002. He conducted an interview with Sky News on the 15th of August 2002, 11 days after the children were abducted. He claimed to be one of the last witnesses to have seen the girls before they disappeared. He was later convicted of their murders. Kerry Stainer did not need to insert himself into the investigation. He was already at the centre of it. He was interviewed twice and had ringside seats to the investigation. When the Sund Peloso case was unfolding, he allegedly participated in animated discussions with other staff about what could potentially have happened to the women. Looking back on the time after the initial disappearance, Carol's son's father, Francis Carrington, recalled a brief encounter he had with Stainer at the Cedar Lodge. Authorities and press were swarming the site, and yet Carrington recalls feeling the handyman looking at him possibly for more time than would be expected in that situation. He said that Stainer was kind of peeking at me and watching me and said that it gave him an uneasy feeling. Stainer was insistent that he had previously seen Bigfoot around the Farista area and liked to wander around the area that he claims this sighting occurred. On the 21st of July, he was driving through this area 
when he had a chance encounter with Joey Armstrong. He claims to have engaged Joey in conversation and noticed that she was packing up her vehicle and preparing to leave. He looked past her into the open doorway of the cabin and realised that she was alone. Emboldened, perhaps by James Maddox's assertion that they had the right people in custody, Stainer must have genuinely believed that he had successfully gotten away with the previous murders. He pulled a gun on Joey and forced her into the cabin, telling her he was just going to rob her. He was repeating the same ruse that he had successfully executed with Carol and the girls. He duct taped her hands and mouth and forced her into his truck. Joey fought fiercely against her attacker, both in the cabin and once she was transferred to Stainer's vehicle. She dove headfirst out of the window of Stainer's moving truck, determined to escape. She ran as fast as she could away from her abductor, but he pursued her. When he caught up with her, he tackled her to the ground and dragged her deeper into the woods. Stainer then pinned Joey down and slit her throat. He again dragged her body towards the creek. It was here that he decapitated her before dumping her body. Rollins recalled that Stainer told him that once he had killed Joey, he knew that he was going to be caught, primarily because of the amount of physical evidence he had left at the crime scene. Stainer's cousin Kathy says that in the weeks and months after the Sun Peloso killings, Carrie's own sisters suspected him and voiced this suspicion in private conversations. They later expressed guilt that they didn't act on their suspicions. Stainer did not appear to be repentant for his crimes. Near the end of his interview with the FBI, he addressed the families of his victims, stating, quote, I am sorry their loved ones were where they were when they were. I wish I could have controlled myself and not done what I did. End quote. In May 2002, Stainer's attorneys entered a not guilty by reason of insanity plea in preparation for the Sund Peloso trial. The trial was moved from Mariposa County to Santa Clara County and began in July 2002 under Judge Thomas J. Hastings. Prosecutor George Williamson tried the case and Marcia Morrissey led Stainer's defence team. The defence team alleged that Stainer's confession was coerced and that he was so delusional at the time of the killings that he was unable to form intent. Stainer faced first-degree murder charges with the death penalty on the table if convicted. His lawyers wanted the charges reduced to second-degree murder where the death penalty would not be an option. On the 22nd of July, the jury heard Stainer's taped confession played in court. In it, they heard Stainer offer to confess if the FBI promised to give the reward money to his family and if they also provided him with child pornography, specifically crime scene photographs of children. In the confession, Stainer claimed that he had never seen child pornography and that he was mystified by it. He said that the desire to view it had been, quote, 
gnawing away at me all my life, end quote. He added that he couldn't live the rest of his life and be happy without seeing it. I'm sure, like me, you have thoughts on this, and none of those thoughts are positive towards Stainer. He also demanded that he be imprisoned in a new penitentiary being built in Atwater as it would be close to his family. During Stainer's failed negotiations, FBI agents asked him to provide a fact from the case that no one else would know. It was at this stage that he admitted to having sent the anonymous note with the map leading to Julie's son's body. This fact had not been released to the media. The FBI did not give in to his demands, and he ultimately confessed without having accessed that material. Special Agent Bulls, one of the agents conducting the interview, explained to Stainer that if they provided child pornography, they would be, quote, committing a crime to solve a crime. Stainer even admitted on the tape that his demands amounted to extortion. There is ample forensic evidence to prove that Stainer committed all of the crimes he was being charged with. Special Agent Christopher Hopkins, Mariposa County Sheriff's Office and the FBI's evidence response team collected items of interest from room 509 at the Cedar Lodge. This is the room that the Sons and Peloso had been staying in. It was also the room in which Stainer had raped Julie, assaulted Sylvina and committed two of the murders. Stainer confessed to removing the bedclothes from the room that may have contained hairs and bodily fluids tying him to the crime. The FBI found trace evidence in the room, including vacuum sweepings containing hair, fluid stains on a blanket, and a latent palm print on a windowsill. Stainer's defence team argued that he had a history of mental illness, trauma resulting from his brother Stephen's kidnapping, and from his own victimisation as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. They cited his marijuana addiction as well as his belief in Bigfoot as being contributing factors to his insanity plea. Prosecutors deemed these factors to be irrelevant. They cited the deliberate steps Stainer had taken to stalk his victims and hide their bodies, not to mention the planned misdirection of planting Carol's son's wallet in Modesto and sending the note with the map to authorities to ensure that they found Julie's body, all while obscuring his own involvement. Let's be clear here. This was premeditated and pre-planned. It was the culmination of decades of violent sexual fantasies come to life. He selected his victims, prepared and retrieved a kill kit from his apartment. He chose a location with low occupancy, knowing that he would have the time and privacy to exact his plan without being seen or disturbed. He brought a camera to document his kills, presumably so that he could relive the thrill again and again. Kay Stainer testified during the penalty phase of her son's trial for the murders of Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. 
In her statement to the court, she appealed to the jury not to give her son a death sentence, adding, If his dying would bring these people back, I'd say do it. But executing him is not going to bring them back. While the Armstrong family did not want to pursue the death penalty, the Sund and Pelosa families pushed for it. Carol's mother and Julie's grandmother, Carol Carrington, said that she's horrified when she thinks of what happened in that room. She says she can't help but imagine what her daughter felt when she realised she was in serious trouble. She wondered how frightened the girls must have been when he cut their clothes off. She asked the judge to sentence Kerry Stainer to death. Francis Carrington stated that he had never seen anything that's so close to black and white and evil and good as Stainer and our children. He said, I'm so proud of the way Carol and Julie lived and I'm so ashamed of Stainer. Stainer's family clearly felt differently, with his father Dell claiming that his son was deprived of a fair trial and that the court proceedings were simply a kangaroo court. Kerry Stainer was found guilty of first-degree murder and ultimately sentenced to death for the Sund Peloso killings. After sentencing, he was moved to San Quentin State Prison, where he is housed on death row. As of the time of this episode's release, he remains on death row. Kerry Stainer is serving a sentence for four murders, but authorities believe that there may be more victims. They cite that Stainer was too methodical and organised a killer for the Sun Pelosa murders to have been his first kills. Speculation is rife that he had some involvement in the death of his uncle Jerry Stainer, as well as his confession that he had planned to rape and murder his girlfriend and her children, as well as stalking other victims in the days before the Sund Pelosa murders. After Stainer's confession, a woman called Lena learned that she had narrowly missed being murdered by him. Lena's mother had met Stainer in 1998 when she worked as a waitress in the restaurant that Stainer lived above and along with her sister and mother spent a good deal of time with Stainer between 98 and 99. She remembers him teaching her how to dive and buying her and her sister Beanie Baby toys. By Stainer's own admission, he had planned to sexually assault and murder the entire family on three different occasions, but was prevented from carrying out his plans every time. Despite this, authorities have nothing concrete to tie Stainer to any other crimes. Speaking to captive audience, Stephen Stainer's daughter Ashley described the horror she felt when she realised that the monster that had committed these crimes was her own family. She said that it's a crazy realisation because I hated the person who did that. She said, What is it about Yosemite and our family? Every time I hear about Yosemite, the first thing I think is my uncle. It's always, always that and will never change. Carrie Stainer was a disturbed child 
and an even more disturbing adult. The culmination of his violent sexual fantasies resulted in the grisly deaths of four people. Was Kerry Stainer destined to become a serial killer? Did this simmering rage lie dormant in him for decades, just waiting to erupt? Did Stephen Stainer's abduction and subsequent return factor into this in any way? Were there other victims that authorities have never been able to connect him to? Kerry Stainer seemed to be preoccupied with his own notoriety, seemingly wanting to replicate his late brother's level of fame, albeit for very different reasons. Stainer's defence tried to use proximity to Stephen and his story to gain sympathy for and excuse the crimes Kerry committed. Ashley believes that her uncle has tainted the memory of her father. There were plans to name a park after Stephen, but after Kerry's crimes came to light, these plans were scrapped. It was thought that Stainer Park would forever be associated with Kerry and his crimes rather than Stephen and his heroism. I have heard commentators attempt to draw parallels between Stainer's crimes and those of Kenneth Parnell the prolific child sex offender who abducted his younger brother Stephen all those years ago. They claim that in either a conscious or unconscious way, Stainer was trying to recreate the elements of Parnell's crimes in his own. I don't believe this for one minute. It simply isn't true and is, in my opinion, a lazy assessment of the crimes. It's a way to build a false equivalency to connect both sets of crimes where no parallel exists. Did Stainer have a fascination with Purnell and crave his infamy? Perhaps. Did Stephen's abduction have an adverse impact on Carey's development? Definitely. But it also impacted Stephen's three sisters and none of them went on to commit any crimes. Journalist Stephen Flynn believes that Stainer never spoke to anyone about the effect that Stephen's abduction may have had on his crimes, and that he's not sure that there is any direct cause and effect. He suggests that even if Stephen had not been abducted, Carey still would have been a serial killer. Every decision that Carey Stainer made on his way to becoming a killer was deliberate and built upon the last one. He prepared a kill kit and scoped out and stalked potential victims. Any trauma he may have suffered as a child does not negate the terror and violence he chose to inflict on others as an adult. This is a tale of two brothers. Born into the same household, yet the trajectory of their lives would take them to very different places. Stephen Stainer stands as testament to the fact that we are not defined by our life experiences, no matter how adverse they may have been. We have the power to shape our own stories. While the Stainer family may forever live in the shadow of Yosemite, Stephen's legacy will live on. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com.
Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. <laughs>